The scripture today is from 1 Peter 1, 22 through 2, 3. Follow along as I read. Having purified your souls by your ordinance to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of un imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that it may grow up, that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor David. Just remember, this is not your cross. Just, just want to make that clear. I know your theology would not allow for that anyways, but. All right, good morning, church. Uh, great privilege to be here this morning with you. I, I, I do count it as a, as a privilege, and uh, I felt like this week, as I studied this text, I was like a, a little... I could see myself when I was a little child being uh, disciplined by my parents because I was confronted by some things that might be hard for me to apply in my own life, like obedience and love. And so um, I hope you feel just the same way as I did as you leave here today. Uh, before we do, before I pray, uh, I just want to uh, say thank you for those of you who are praying uh, for the retreat. Yes, I survived. And so did all the leaders. We lost only three kids along the process. So uh, we have a 1-800 line you can call for it. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, it was uh, a tremendous uh, time of fellowship and encouragement, I think, for the students, for myself as well, for all the leaders. Um, I told the staff that uh, if the retreat had gone any better, the second one would never happen because it would be a disappointment. So. I think we set the bar just in the right place as we move forward. So I just want to say thank you for those of you who are uh, just praying for us and uh, especially praying for the students, and we continue to do that because they are not the future of this church. They are the present. And uh, if you wait for that to happen tomorrow, it may never happen. So I hope that that will never happen here. So let's pray together. Father, just thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the testimony of all uh, those being baptized that we just witnessed. Thank you that they were willing to obey your command to go forward and to, and to follow you in obedience and to publicly declare what you have already done for them. And Father, as we looked at this morning, as this uh, text was just read, that our minds and our souls would be inundated by the reality and the truthfulness of your character. Uh, Father, I pray that your love would um, flood our hearts. 
that your spirit would use, would use your word as the fuel to take us to places to be the witness you, you want us to be, to love those around us that need to be loved. And Father, I just thank you that we can look through this text today and we still have the freedom to do so. May we never take it for granted. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2 as well. At the end of chapter 1, verse 25. Um, our title for today is Desiring God's Word Leads to Loving Others Earnestly. Now, the theme of the initial verses that we're going to look into today, 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25, Peter's going to give a major command here, which is not a new command for us, but I believe as, as I study this text, I believe that this command is actually grounded in the foundation that God has give, gifted us with in Jesus Christ. If you look with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, verse 16, Peter says before he talks about getting rid of all those things uh, that will bother you in your walk with him and fully be sober, set your hope completely on the grace that has been brought before you in verse 13. Verse 16, he says this, you shall be holy because I am holy. And he's talking about a commandment that goes all the way, a statement that goes all the way to the Old Testament when God proclaimed to Moses, who do you want me to tell them that is sending me? You tell them that I am. Jesus has use that in the book of John. There are seven statements actually right now in our boys' Bible study. That's the study for the semester. We're studying the I am statements of Jesus. So, so this is actually grounded in godly conduct. To love one another is grounded in holy conduct. We have to reflect the holy character of the one who has called us. And, and this is so evident throughout the letter that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Peter says this, and you don't have to flip there, but he, just listen. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. The same thing he says in verse 13. For the sake of your prayers. And then he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter's argument here is grounded in that foundation, but it's only one character, one characteristic of what the Christian life really looks like and how we are supposed to directly obey that commandment. Now, Peter was one of the disciples. He was not only heavily involved or heavily uh, studied in the Old Testament because that's how the law was taught to them since they were little ones, but now he's, as a disciple of Jesus, he had firsthand information from the things that God wanted to teach us through his only son. And here's a statement that I think drives this passage in 1 Peter, and it's found in John chapter 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you, but you can jot those down. John 13, verses 34 and 35, very familiar words, and it says this, I give you a new command, or a new commandment, to love one another. Now, this is not new at all, right? Because Christ is reflecting what God has told them in the Ten Commandments. Love your God and love others. He says, love one another, just as I, now he makes it personal, have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, everyone will know this, that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, the love here is a love for one another in the sense of the disciples and the, and the people of God. 
So in John 13, this statement was actually a radical statement because it is radical for us too because in one sense, we are thinking about number one first. We're always thinking number one. If you have any doubts about that, you have to go to the nursery in the morning and you realize that we're, we're born with a number one mentality. It is about me. So Jesus is saying, not only it's not about you, but you need to, first of all, the foundation is to love God. And then second of all, you need to love others. Then maybe for the third prize, you can think about yourself. But there's a foundation here. And this, and this pyramid in Jesus' foundation is upside down because he's placing God, he's placing others, and then he's thinking maybe if you have time after you do those things really well, you might be able to think about yourself. So love God as I have loved you. Now, with that in mind, I want to dive into this text here with you in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, listen to verse 22. It says this, you have purified your souls by obeying the truth in order to show sincere and mutual love. Peter says, so love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You have been born anew, not from, it, from perishable, but from imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Now, the word that Peter uses here for the word to love is the word agapao, okay? It describes someone or something, or the love for someone or the love for something that's based on a sincere appreciation or a high regard for that thing or that individual. In essence, what Peter's actually calling us to do here is to understand how we proper, we have a proper respond, response to what God has commended to us, which means he has given us salvation. Now, how do we know that he's talking about a proper conduct that's a reflection of our salvation? Look at verse 21. Here's what it says, through him, you now trust in God. Now the question is, who is the him here? Go to verse 19, he says this, but by precious blood, like that of the unblemished and spotless lamb, namely Christ, listen to what it says in 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but now was manifested in these last times for your sake. So he says, through him, you are now you have trust in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope, those two words here, faith and hope as a reflection of salvation, are in God. Now, let me make a contrast to this. Because if, if we're supposed to love one another based on what Christ has done for us, what about those who have not been loved by God and have not trusted in Jesus? What about the unbeliever? Well, why he is not or she is not able to love just like Peter is commanding us to do? The reason is because this type of love overflows from the love that God has already manifested to us and given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, an unbeliever doesn't have that love. We might be able to show good things, and Luke chapter 11 surely talks about this. We might be able to give gifts that are good, but we'll never be able to show the love of God unless God has loved us, and we have understood that, and now we're part of his family because of Jesus Christ. This type of love, according to Peter, is a love that is not only radical, but it comes from a pure heart. Did you see what he says here? 
You have been purified your souls by obeying the truth in order to show sincere love, so love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The unbeliever cannot do that. And I'm afraid that many times the believers are not willing to do that. Let me expand on the command here just for a second because Peter's going to use two participles here which are verb endings with an ing at the end that's usually used as an adjective, okay? And he's going to give us the two reasons. So here's what you need to know. He says to us, you have been purified your souls by the obedience of the true, and to be purified, to have been purified, is one of the participles. The second one is found in verse 23, where it says, you have been born anew. Now, right in the middle of those two verbs, Peter is going gonna, is gonna to give us the, the, the meat of the sandwich. Now, I don't know about you, but when you eat a sandwich, the outside's usually okay. The inside is what you usually pay for. So, sandwich in the middle of those two participles to be purified and to be born anew, Peter gives us the reason for and the command to love one another earnestly. But let's look through those details first because to be purified in here is a very significant theme. In the Old Testament, this was part of a ceremonial cleansing that one would go through in order to show that he or she was cleansed, purified before the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, this is not a ceremonial process anymore because we don't follow the Old Testament instructions because Christ is the one who has offered us purification. Now, that is the same idea described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, when he says this, listen, but you were washed, and look at the verbs, they're all in the past, you were washed, you were sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So the purification that, that Peter's actually talking to us here happens exactly at the, the moment in which us, us, come in contact with the foundation that he has provided to us, which is the salvation that Jesus gives to us on the cross. That is the purification. That's where it starts here. But look at this. Peter is so clever in his argument that he not only says that this purification, our souls have been purified, but he gives us the exact starting point of this. Now look at the rest of that. You have purified your souls by obeying the truth. Now it sounds like if I obey the truth, I purified myself. But what's happening here, Peter is saying, you have obeyed the truth, therefore your soul have been purified. Once again, it's a foundation if God is not working in godly plans, in God-orchestrated in God moments, then it's, it's man-made. And Peter's arguing that the purification, the cleansing of our souls have not happened apart from God's work. And that's why the gospel is not only a response or a promise that we can rely on, but it's a command we must obey. It is a command that must be internally absorbed before being externally demonstrated. It has to be in you before it can leave you. Because if Jesus is not in me, what comes out of me is me. And I'll tell you what, that would not be a good picture. You can ask my wife. And you can ask my kids. 
And you can go to the nursery on Sunday mornings. Now, let me give an illustration. I have told my daughters and I've told some of my students here that God does everything with a purpose because God is a purposeful God. One of the things that I believe God has done for us is to help us to understand that when we were born, we were born into a family. Perhaps some of you didn't have that privilege. But just, 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 just think with me, imagine with me for a second that God has given you a family. Now, who are the hardest people to love? Is it the person that you meet on Sunday morning when you walked in here and you have coffee and donuts and name tags and everything else outside? Or is it the people that you go back to after the, we say, amen, have a great week, and you drive home? I think God has given us some of those things because those things are training ground for the love of God to be demonstrated. We work hard to show love to the people that know us the best because they not only know our flaws, but they know our mistakes. And if we do well in those environments, when we are outside of those things, it will be so much love for us, church, to love like God has loved us in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that my first responsibility is not before you? It is a privilege for me to be here, but my first responsibility is to love God and to love my family. I'm commanded to lead my wife and to lead my kids. I'm not commanded to be here with you. And so we, when we understand how love is supposed to take place because God has purified us, every single relationship that, that we face and see will be an opportunity, a, a training ground for us to grow in that area so that we can be a light. Now, did you notice that this type of love here that Peter mentions is not hypocritical, but it's sincere? It is, it is sincere because it's sacrificial. It, it imitates, it reflects the love of Jesus. And we're supposed to love just like that, aren't we? Don't we say here at CBF that we love God and we love others? That that's the reason why this church is here? So what a great opportunity to do so. This past year, my daughter, my oldest daughter, came into my office one morning and she wanted to talk to me about God's love. Now, that's a really good topic, isn't it? It's one that you can be done in 15 seconds, especially when you have work to do, right? So she wanted to know, talk to me about God's love, and she said, hey, Dad, how, how, how do other people see God's love when we're trying to love them? How, how do we reflect that? And we said, that's a great question. Let's come up with an acronym for, for love. So I'm going to give you my daughter's definition of love based on what the world will see when you love them, Okay. Love means letting others value eternity. Letting others value eternity. What Peter is saying here is that you need to love your fellow believers, letting them value eternity. So here's what he does. Look at verse 23. He says this, you have been born again or born anew from not from perishable but from imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of god now we jump right into the second point of your 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 
bulletin in here, which is you have been born again, which is the word of God produces a new birth. Now, someone actually has said this, and I'm going to quote here, that Peter's describing new life as a seed, literally indicating that God has fathered these individuals by the seed of his word. God's divine intervention comes through the salvation he offers us, and we mentioned that previously here. And the seed is his word that he shares with us in his divine character. Now, if you notice what I just read, everything in here is about him and not about Peter. It's about God and not about the people that he's writing to. It's about the, the Savior that provided the way for the people to rejoice and love one another earnestly. Now, this word is also, the text described here as imperishable. Now, in my life, everything seems to be perishable. I haven't seen anything imperishable yet. I mean, I was researching the other day about foods that can be stored for a long time, and I found beans that can be stored for 30 years, and I thought, mm, I don't want to buy those. I'm sorry. I'm not even thinking about the consequence of eating beans that have been stored for 30 years. Now, the seed here is imperishable. And the key here is this. The seed, which is God's word, is imperishable because it reflects his character. If the seed here was perishable coming from God, then God would not be who he claims to be. Third, the word not only produces new birth, it's imperishable, but the word of God endures forever. Now look at the end of verse 23. It says this, not from perishable, but from imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Now, if you go all the way to the end of verse 25, which we're going to look into just a moment, he says this, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, the word of God is everlasting. We know that to be true. We understand that that's part of who God is. God's word represents, once again, his character here. It cannot be anything apart from who he is. And that's why the psalmist in Psalms uh, chapter 90, verse 2, he says this, listen, He's going to declare, before the mounts were born or before the world was formed, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, I, I stopped this week to think about this, and I wrote some things down here. They're not God's word. They're just my reflection, okay? So just bear with me for a second. Here's what I think. God says that his word's powerful, it's unfailing, it's alive, it's active and not passive, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. His word is sufficient, inerrant, and personal and divine. His word is a light unto my feet, and it gives understanding to the soul. His word is from everlasting to everlasting. It's a seed that produces abundant life. His word is a representation of his unfailing character. His word sustains his people, brings faith, accomplishes his will, gives spiritual birth, and it abides within his people. Those who meditate on and abide in, abide in it like a tree planted by the, as my daughters used to say, streams of water, which produces its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. According to Peter, God's word produces not only salvation, but it also provides an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And you can get that from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. What's amazing here is that Peter, Peter could have been done right now, and that would have been a tremendous three verses, two verses. 
But then he says, not only that, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, and I'm going to give you something else to show you that what I'm telling you about God's word is extremely true. So he dives right in into Isaiah chapter 40, and that's verses 40, 24 and 25. And he says this, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Now, if you know the context of Isaiah, God is using Isaiah to write a message to the nation of Israel to say, hey, listen, there's hard times coming. You will be in exile. You will be crushed. It will be so bad that from the outside looking in, it will be like you are a nation without a God. But here's what I want you to remember as you're being crushed based on your sin before me, that I will keep my word and I will restore you in the nations that I will crush. They will be just like the passage I just read to you. They will be like all flesh is like grass in all its glory of the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Here's what he's saying. The nation that will crush you might be mighty in your eyes, but in my, in my dichotomy in here, in my, in my way of dealing with things, they're just like grass. So the question is, why does Peter brings this passage into here? And I think what he's doing is, he, he's proclaiming to the nation of Israel at that time the same thing that Isaiah did, to the nation of Israel all the way back that God's going to restore them that even under oppression the oppression that they're going through that God's word is going to be faithful and God will keep his word to make sure his people are with him so here's an application I don't know what your situations are but I know our situation here is not similar to Isaiah chapter 40 and I know we're not struggling like First Peter was, where people were dispersed. But here's the reality, and you can put that on your pocket and keep it in there forever, because it will never fail. God's word will prevail over oppression, over sin, over my faults, and over yours. So here's what we've seen so far. We have been purified by the, by the obedience of the, God's word, and we have been given a new birth through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, consequently, our, our relation to each one of those two command, the main command, those two verbs that I just read, is that we must now love one another. You realize that God is not asking you to love when it's easy? Do you, do you understand because if he's asking us to love when it's easy, you will never love anybody. And if that's, a, that's the requirement that he has for you, he would have to have the same requirement for his son. So his son would never come because we were unlovable and unlikable. So we must love one another. I look around, church. Look, look around here. You're not supposed to love the people just sitting next to you. You're supposed to love the people across this. Because it is according to Jesus in John 13 that is that way that the world will see you as followers of him.
Here's the second point. Chapter two. Not only Peter talks about this command to love, but he's gonna give us a second command, which is to long for God's word. To long for his word. Now, here, here's the priority for the believer in chapter, chapter two, verse one. Get, get rid of all evil and all deceit and hypocrisy and every and envy and all slander. That's what he says. And now there's, there might be some of you here maybe thinking, and maybe, maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe you're watching us online right now. You're thinking, see, I knew it. That is why I do not go to church. There's always a list. I always have to be better than somebody else, and I always have to do something or not to do something. Now, just hang with me for a second, because this is exactly not what Peter is talking about here. Because the command here, and here's what you need to understand as we read this, the command here is not to get rid of those things. The command is to long for God. Consequently, if you do so, you'll realize that, hey, if God loves me that much, why do I want to have that, those things that are junk in my life instead of having the things that are holy And that's why it's so interesting about this because we're not supposed to just get rid of things for the sake of getting rid of things and becoming legalistic about our approach to this life. You are supposed to do that because God has done something for you. You have been loved by him. He has given you new life. He has purified you. Therefore, now you can long for him. And out of that, you can realize, man, there's some things that entangle my own walk with him. I got to get rid of those things. So to get rid of things here is literally ceasing from doing what, is, what, is, what, it, what one is actually accustomed to. That's why Paul, when he writes, it says you need to put on some things and you need to put off some other things. You need to put off the things that you used to be and now you need to put on the things that Christ is for you. So God is not asking us to replace anything here because he just likes a laundry list of things that we need to do here. We should desire to get rid of the, those things as a consequence of our longing for him because we in the past have been loved by him. Do you see how this goes backwards? Do you see why Jesus' command to love is an upside down, radical proclamation? Now, let me give you one reasoning if you think, okay, why? Well, I don't think that's too bad. Let me give you one reason for why you need to get rid of those things. What Peter is doing is he's showing you that the nature of those four words that he used here said evil, deceit, and hypocrisy, envy, and slander. The nature of that, of those words, are destructive. Now, I don't know if you ever had a, a destructive relationship or friendship when you're younger? Maybe for you is like if I eat something, I get extremely sick. You need to think about those things because evil means feeling of hostility and a strong desire with a possible implication of deciding to harm someone. Deceit and hypocrisy denotes dishonesty, falsehood, insincerity and pretense, envy, we don't even have to define those things. Our culture is based on that. We survive on those things. Slanders to spread lies about other people. 
But the opposite traits, when we look at this, because God has saved us, is also true. We need to care for one another. We need to show sincerity in, in the love that we demonstrate. Now, many years ago, a, uh, a few park rangers at the Grand Canyon began to evaluate what was going on, and they realized that the, the, uh, some of the deer in the park were actually eating off of the food that people were leaving behind. And they realized that there was a list of items that were like the preferable items for the deer. The favorite ones here were potato chips, cheese curls, and candy. And I can tell you, I've never been to Grand Park, but if, or Grand Canyon, but if I was there, the deer would starve because those are the things that I like and I wouldn't leave anything behind for them. So I don't know what those people were thinking to start with. But, but, but here's, here's what happened. We're laughing about this, and I'm trying to make it laughable, but I, here's, here's the connection. Once they got a taste of the sugar and the salt, this is a, new, a newspaper article, and they said this, the deer developed an extreme addiction and went to great lengths to eat junk food. I wonder if they had a credit card. Maybe the gas station down the street. As a result, the animals ignored the food they needed. Listen. Here's the point. The animals ignored the food they needed, leaving them in poor health and on the edge of starvation. The junk food cravings cause them to lose their natural ability to digest vegetation. And those park rangers had to kill over two dozen of deer because they were eating that in which was not good for them. Now here's the question. <laughs> What's causing you to wish anything other than what God wishes for you? I mean, when I was a teenager, I lived a few days on a diet, diet Coke and Coke and candy. But if that was my diet, oh boy, I don't think I'll be here. What's causing you to crave for the things that God doesn't want for you? Here's the good part of this. God has a solution for us, so let's, let's close this. Verse 2 and 3. And the solution, I think, comes from the powerful potential of God's Word. Which means you need to cultivate a hunger for God's Word to promote spiritual maturity in your life. The solution here comes from the verb that I mentioned to you, which is a, a command here, it's an imperative, which is to yearn like newborn infants for pure spiritual milk. Yesterday we had a meeting, and uh, in the meeting there was a lady with a baby, and it was every two hours she has to feed this baby. And I'm thinking, I'm supposed to long for God's word just as much as that baby longs for that milk to survive. Now, did you guys ever notice any babies walking in, two, three, four days old, walking in and coming to church? Did you guys ever see any, any child that's one year old just walking in and coming to church by themselves? They need the power of their parents to sustain them. And the parents know exactly what they need. And if that is true, then God, who is our heavenly Father, whose character is perfect, who has done everything towards rescuing 
sinners like you and me back to himself and has given his holy son to die on the cross so that that process could be accomplished, don't you think that what he knows about our diet, spiritual diet, could be true? He has already fathered us. He's giving us a new birth. Peter's analogy here is extremely simple, but it's so powerful, isn't it? Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from his spiritual food, we cannot sustain ourselves. You might be able to eat chicken and all kinds of protein and go to the gym and gain some muscles, but here's the thing. That might be good health-wise for you in this life, but I promise you, based on what Peter is saying, that's not what he wants for you. Because I cannot show love to people just because I eat a good diet on this earth. I need to show love to people because I understand the diet he has for me. And the beauty of this is that if you have a child who is only two seconds old, or if you are a grandparent who is 135 years old, the diet applies for you as it applies to the child. So here's the beauty. What's the reason for getting rid of those things for you to grow? Like newborn babies, you need to wish for those things. Now, I grew up in Brazil, and you know that. I have seen many malnourished individuals. I more than I wanted to. It is never a pretty sight. But here's the difference between the physical side and the spiritual side. In the physical side, some people don't have the ability to sustain themselves. They don't have the financial gains and means and power to sometimes provide for themselves. Yes, sometimes there's bad decisions that were made, but that's not the point. The point is in that moment, they cannot provide for themselves. On the spiritual sense, God has provided everything for you. I mentioned a few months ago when we preached through the book of Nehemiah, in this country, there is an average of four to five Bibles in every single household in here, which is 1.4 million Bibles. Paper Bibles. That's not even talking about apps. And the problem is the person who is malnourished physically may not be able to provide themselves, but we have the provision here and we ignore that. Can you imagine if a malnourished person walked in and he was spiritually healthy and he said to all of us, man, you guys have everything, but you have nothing. Because it's a, it's a, it's a scale of priorities. So here's, let me just give you a few things. How do we grow spiritually? God's word must be a priority. You need to long for his word. You need to long for understanding. If you don't understand something, ask a question. That's why in our student ministries, there's a, there's a Pastor Michael's policy. There's no stupid question. You can ask any question anytime you want. Number two, you need to eliminate sinful actions and attitudes in order to be able to walk properly. 
Number three, you need to meditate on God's word. You need to treasure it in your heart. You need to apply God's command. And here's, 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 the, here's the hard part, church. You and I are not supposed to pick and choose what we obey. It's not like when I give my kids the option of having mashed potatoes, broccoli, something else, and they say, no, I just want a slice of bread tonight. You can't survive on that. Obey the hard things. Look for opportunities to use those things. Don't only ingest God's word, but exercise God's word. And Peter's command here is for us to desperately crave for the milk, the spiritual milk that he gives us. And he ends this with an amazing part when he says in verse 3, if you have experienced the Lord's kindness, which he's saying you have, this is a reflection of Psalm 33, 8, when the psalmist says, Oh, taste, and you know these words, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me end with this quote. Schreiner says, Believers should long for the Lord if indeed they have tasted or experienced His kindness. Longing to grow spiritually comes from a taste of the beauty of the Lord and experience of his kindness and goodness. Those who pursue God passionately have tasted his sweetness. Christian growth for Peter is not a, a, a mere call to duty or an alien moralism. The desire to grow springs from, a, from an experience with the Lord's kindness, an experience that leaves believers desiring more. And I hope you can understand that God has given us everything according to 2 Peter 2 pertaining to life and godliness. That our desires to long for him so that we, listen to this, so that we can love one another as he has loved us. Father, we thank you for this morning. Time goes by too fast. And sometimes we, we get too concerned about things that don't really matter in life. And so I pray that CBF will have their priorities straight. That we as a church would understand that the love that you have for us should motivate us and compel us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to love you and to be ambassadors for your glory. Help us to love one another and help us to long for the spiritual milk that help us to grow in our walk with you. We love you, Lord.